everyone. Um, this is Sue Parker-Strafasi from Braille Institute, and I would love to introduce Dr. Bill Takeshi tonight. He's the Chief of Optometric Services and Coordinator of the Children's Programs for the Center of the Parsi Sighted. He'll be talking tonight, and as well as the Director of Low Vision Training for Braille Institute. And uh, we're just very happy to be partnering with uh, the Center for the Parsi Sighted to bring you this telephone call and this, this, this podcast. Tonight he'll be talking about retinal um, children's pediatric retinal diseases and as well as aniridia and coloboma and probably an opportunity for you guys just to kind of ask Dr. Bill about um, other conditions. Um, I do have one quick announcement for you, announcement that the Birth to Five Vision Network, uh, which is a co- collaboration of several agencies in the Southern California area, has just uh, published a parent resource packet that will be available at the um, CTEBVI conference this weekend, and also will be available at our network weekend, March 24th. Um, this is our Parent Professional Day. It's available, uh, and and it will be available then as well. Um, for more information about our network uh, event, you can go to our website. It's birthtofivision.org. And you can also download uh, registration forms for families if they're interested. But um, the packet will be available on our website soon, and I will, you know, we'll be able to give you more updates about that in the next few weeks, few months. Thank you so much. I'll just hand it over to Dr. Bill now. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sue. And it's really, really nice to be here with all of you again. Uh, this evening we have people here from throughout the United States, so we're very, very grateful that you have heard about this. And tonight we're going to be talking about some of the other types of common retinal conditions that cause vision impairment among children. In some of our previous telephone discussions, we talked about cortical vision impairment in optic nerve hypoplasia and retinopathy of prematurity. But tonight we're going to talk about some other more specific types of retinal conditions. And before we do that, we're going to sort of review the anatomy. Now, in order for vision to occur, we all remember that vision must involve light. If there is no light, there is no vision. And the reason for this is that the eye is merely a receiver of light. It's very similar to the solar cell that's on our calculators. You might remember the first time you saw one of these calculators that ran on solar power and it didn't need a battery. Well, the little solar chip, which absorbs the light and converts it into electricity, is very similar to the way that the eye works. In the human eye, for a baby or an adult, the picture of what the child sees, it has light rays, and these light rays then enter the eye through the pupil. As you know, the pupil is the circular hole that's right in the very center of the colored part of your eye when you look at yourself in the mirror. Well, the pupil primarily regulates how much light is going to enter the eye, and the information will then focus on a tissue that is called the retina. Now, when we think about the retina, we can think of the retina as being a very delicate tissue, very similar to that of a thin piece of toilet paper. And this particular type of tissue, the retina, it is highly, highly organized. In other words, the cells that make up the retina are in particular locations, and the arrangement of each of these cells is very, very important. Now, when we think about how these cells are arranged in the retina, we could almost think of this piece of tissue paper as a pizza. It's a circular type of tissue, and in the very center, if we imagine that our pizza had one piece of pepperoni, right in the very, very center of the pizza. Now, that central region of the retina where the pepperoni would be is called the macula, and the macula is made up of cone cells in the retina. So the significance of the center little piece of pepperoni in our central macular retina is that those cells in the macula are what are responsible for giving us detailed vision. Those cells allow us to identify your face, a letter, a number, colors, and it also is very important for us to have normal daylight vision. So we call the macula or the central vision the identification vision. If 
if there's ever a time we want to identify who or what something is, we tend to move our eyes so the picture focuses on the macula. Now, within that macular region, even though it is very, very tiny, there are millions and millions of these cone cells, and each of these cells are sending that type of electrical signals to the brain for the brain to identify what it is. Now, you might then ask, well, what's the rest of the retina for? If we think about a pizza that only has one piece of pepperoni, there's a lot of pizza that doesn't have a pepperoni. While that peripheral area of the pizza that does not have any pepperoni, that is called our peripheral retina. The peripheral retina is made up of a different type of cell that's called the rod cell, and the rod cells do not have the ability to identify details very well. The rod cells gives us our peripheral vision. So, for example, if we're looking straight ahead and we see our feet on the floor, our peripheral vision is what sees our feet. Or if you're driving and you're following a car directly in front of you and you're reading the license plate, but through the corners of your eyes you see a police officer coming up beside you, the peripheral retina is seeing that. So these rod cells, they give us our peripheral vision, and they give us the ability to see at night, and they're also very sensitive to seeing motion. So the two important factors here are that these two specific regions of the retina have different functions. The central vision in the central retina gives us the ability to identify details such as words and numbers and letters and colors and faces, and it gives us our daylight vision. Whereas the rod cells in the periphery of the retina, it gives us our peripheral vision, our night vision, and it's also very, very sensitive to motion. So when we think about these two geographical areas, we can then understand how some of these different types of conditions might affect a person's vision. Each of these cells in the retina has a little fiber, and this fiber gets sent all the way to the very back of the brain, and this is how the brain processes all of this information. As you can see, it's very, very complicated where you have millions and millions and millions of cells, and each cell has a little fiber, and it sends the information to the brain. As a result, this is why two-thirds of the brain is involved in the process of vision. So some of the more common types of vision problems that do affect the retina at birth are achromatopsia, aniridia, albinism, and chromatopsia. So we're going to talk about these very, very briefly, but I think you'll soon understand what's the condition and how it affects functional vision. When we talk about these types of retinal conditions, the first thing that we always want to find out is, is it something that damages the macula and the central vision, or is it something that affects the peripheral retina and the peripheral vision? Once we identify what part of the retina has been damaged, we then have a better understanding of what's going to be affected. The first one that we're going to talk about is called achromatopsia. And you spell it A-C-H-R-O-M-A-T-O-P-S-I-A, achromatopsia. And it's also known as rod, R-O-D, monochromatism, M-O-N-O-C-H-R-O-M-A-T-I-S-M. So when we break this word down, achromatopsia, a usually means without. Chroma is color. Opsia would be the vision. So as a result, this sort of gives us a clue that the people with achromatopsia do not have color vision. And when we sort of think about what portion of the retina gives us our color vision, that is the central vision. So achromatopsia, number one, it is a condition that affects the macula of the retina. 
These children often are born without any cone cells whatsoever. And because there are no cone cells, there is no macula, and we know that the macula allows us to identify details and to identify colors. So these kids are totally colorblind, and they have vision that is very, very blurred where they cannot identify details. Their vision is often 2200 to 2400, and as a result, these children are usually legally blind. Because the macula is also involved, we stated earlier that the macula, it gives us our detailed vision, and it also gives us our ability to see in the daylight. Because they do not have the cells that give daylight vision, these kids have a lot of problems seeing in the bright daylight. So as a result, they not only have color blindness, they not only have blurred, blurred sight, but they also have very severe photophobia. So they have a typical visual problem of a person who has a macular problem. They cannot see the details, they cannot see the colors, and they're very, very sensitive to the light. Now, unfortunately, achromatopsia is something that at this time there is no medical treatment. In other words, we do not have a proven medical treatment where we could implant some of the cone cells and produce a macula. But on the other hand, because this condition is also somewhat somewhat similar to age-related macular degeneration, which is the leading cause of legal blindness of older adults, there's a tremendous amount of research where scientists are studying ways to be able to implant cells into the macula. Some of this may involve the use of gene therapy. Others may involve the use of stem cells. So there's a lot of research that's going on in the area of macular degeneration, and a lot of this type of treatment may also help people with the achromatopsia. So when we see patients who do have achromatopsia, usually their vision is quite stable throughout their life. We don't see that this is something that progresses, and it usually does not affect their peripheral vision. So because these kids have good peripheral vision, these kids usually are most common at nighttime where they feel they could walk very comfortably at night because it's dark. Their mobility, their ability to walk is often quite good because they do have the peripheral vision. And I have some patients who are very, very good in terms of playing sports because they see motion so well. For example, if the child is going to go out there and play basketball and they have achromatopsia, they will be able to see the movement of their teammates and the movement of the ball very, very well. So some of the things to do to help these kids, one of the best things to help is to first to reduce the photophobia. They are so photophobic that these are kids who might come into the classroom and they have a jacket over their head, or they might have a shirt or a sweatshirt covering their head because they're so sensitive to the light. The first thing that we do with these children, even when they're very young, is we often will try to fit them with a contact lens. And the advantage of wearing a tinted contact lens is that it prevents light from coming in from any direction. When we wear a pair of glasses, there's always a little bit of light that will sneak through through the sides. But a contact lens can be made darker, and it's going to filter out all the light through the peripheral vision. So there's a customized type of a contact lens that we can prescribe, and it will really reduce that type of photophobia and these kids at that time, they will think that it's nighttime. In other words, the contact lenses make it so dark that they think it's nighttime, and under that dark situation, the rod cells that work fine in their eyes have much, much better efficiency. Number two, we then want to go ahead and improve their detailed vision. As we stated before, their acuity is usually 2200 to 2400, so when they're doing different types of reading, many times they'll benefit from reading glasses or a high-powered bifocal or even a CCTV. 
Most of these kids are quite young and they have strong eye muscles, so they often could hold things close to their face and they could read the print quite well. If they need to, we will often incorporate number three, some type of a filter. Another filter that could be worn even over the contact lenses. So if they have a classroom that's extremely bright, we may then have them wear a pair of sunglasses over on top of their tinted contact lenses to reduce the amount of light to make it more comfortable for them to read. Even colored overlays could be very helpful. If you have some of the blue transparencies, you could put that over their reading materials and that could be very, very helpful. To help them to see the board, number four, we often are going to recommend that kids will sit in the front portion of the classroom. Now, a conventional blackboard or a conventional chalkboard with bold white chalk usually is easier for them to see as compared to the dry erase board. The dry erase board is often too bright and it causes a lot of pain and their eyes will begin to tear. If you can't really do anything about that and you have positioned them in the front of the classroom but you still have a whiteboard, a video magnifier that focuses far and near would be extremely helpful. Some of the video magnifiers, such as the Enhanced Vision Acrobat or the Freedom Scientific Onyx, uh, the Optilic Multiview, these are all very, very good distance and near video magnifiers. And what's nice about it is the fact that these video magnifiers, we could press a button and on that white dry erase board, we could convert and change the color of the whiteboard to black. So we could have a black background and white text, or a black background and yellow text. One of the things that has just been released is that with the Enhanced Vision Acrobat, their Acrobat system is going to come out so that it does have the ability to take a picture of something that you see, and it will perform optical character recognition. So what that means is that it has the capability of taking the picture of what is on the dry erase board or a book, and it could even read it out loud for the student. So if a student is a very strong auditory learner, then this is also another really nice solution. Now, when kids are not inside the classroom, maybe you're going to the library, you've got an event in the auditorium, kids would Achromatopsia also respond very well to a monocular telescope. Now, a monocular telescope is a very small telescope that's smaller than a roll of quarters, generally. And when we as optometrists prescribe a monocular telescope for a child with achromatopsia, there are special features of the telescope that will not allow as much light coming into the telescope, which will improve their vision. So as a result, you want to prescribe one that is going to be skinnier as compared to fatter. When you have a telescope, the fatter the telescope, it usually has a larger lens and it lets more light in. So for example, there is a 8X25 and there's also an 8X16. Now, the 8X usually will tell you that it's going to magnify things eight times, and the 25 means it's a 25-millimeter lens. If the other one says 8X16, it means there's a 16-millimeter lens. So the 16-millimeter lens is smaller, and as a result, it won't be as bright. So the child with achromatopsia may really like that. When these students are then working on the computers, most of them should be able to use screen magnification on the computer very well. So a computer magnification program such as Freedom Scientific's Magic or AI Squared Zoom Text, these are all really very, very good magnification programs. Both of them do have a large print keyboard and again, I would recommend a keyboard that would have black keys with white letters. The Freedom Scientific keyboard, I have found that my students have an easier time using that keyboard because on the left side of the keyboard there's a little wheel and they could very easily change the magnification. 
Also, what's helpful on that keyboard is that it's very quick and easy to find the keys that if you want to change the speech, if you want it to talk faster or slower or louder, you could do that very, very easily. So overall, with achromatopsia, uh, these are students that are very, very fun to work with because they do have a high amount of vision. Generally speaking, the peripheral retina functions very, very well, and we simply have to try to make things similar to nighttime. When we use all of these optical and the assistive technology, for the most part, most of them do very well when they are going to use their vision. But for those who suffer from eye fatigue, we could still also use some of the other types of technology that's available where there will be text-to-speech and it will speak out loud. And I do have two students with achromatopsia where even though they do have a high amount of vision, they prefer to read with Braille because they say that their eyes are much more comfortable and they, they read much faster. So that's what's going on there with achromatopsia. And towards the end here, we'll open it up to questions. Another eye condition that affects the retina is called aniridia. And aniridia is spelled A-N-I-R-I-D-I-A. Aniridia is another congenital type of condition in which a child is born with some differences with their eyes. The first thing is that when you see a child who is born with aniridia, you notice that when you look at them, you notice that their pupils are very, very large. Or you might say, my goodness, his eyes, his eye color is almost black. He doesn't look like he has any iris or the colored part of the eye. And the reason for that is aniridia means that A is without ridia, iris. Aniridia means these children are born without the iris of the eyes. So when they look at themselves in the mirror or you look at them, you don't see the colored part of the eye. It just looks like they have a giant pupil where their pupil is very large and dilated. Now, when you see an Asian child or an African-American child or a Latino child, sometimes you really can't even tell that there's something different because these children generally do have dark iris. But if you see a child who is very fair-skinned, and you would expect that they would have blue eyes or green eyes, and you see the entire color of the eye looks black, it's more apparent. The second thing that you notice with the children with aniridia is they almost always have nystagmus, and this is the horizontal shaking of the eyes. The nystagmus may be very fast. In some cases, it will be slow. But the speed that the eye shakes gives us an indication of the level of vision. Generally, the faster that the eyes shake from left to right means that they have more vision. If their eyes shake very, very slow, and if the eyes shake up and down, that generally means that they have worse vision. So when we see a baby who has no iris and the eyes are shaking from side to side, it gives us a good idea that they do have aniridium. Now, when the eye is developing in the uterus of the mother, we know that this is something that occurs earlier than 15 weeks of life. Excuse me. Well, 15 weeks since conception. So, again, after the sperm fertilizes the egg, the eye begins to develop quite early. And this condition not only affects the development of the iris, but it could also affect the development of the lens inside the eye. So these children are at a much greater risk to have an abnormal lens. Now, in each side, inside each eye of a, of a child or an adult, we generally have what is called the crystalline lens. And the crystalline lens is the lens that is inside the eye and it's positioned right behind the iris. So when you look at yourself in the mirror, you can't see it because the lens is behind the iris. But that crystalline lens is normally transparent. And it's transparent so that light can pass through the lens. And the lens has the ability to change its shape to allow the child and the adult to focus at different distances. 
So what's different about the children with aniridia is that the lens in their eye is often very, very clouded. And this clouded lens often does not allow light to enter into the retina and to focus on the retina. So as a result, many children who have aniridia will also have a cataract, and that cataract will often have to be removed in order for vision to occur. So fortunately, the cataract surgery is something that's quite simple for the pediatric ophthalmologist to perform, and they will remove that cataract to allow the light to enter the retina. Now, as we stated, when we remove the cataract, the eye no longer has that lens that could focus the images on the retina, so these kids often are going to be fit with a contact lenses, or they'll be fit also with very thick, powerful glasses. And other times, it will be a combination of the contact lens as well as the glasses. A third type of eye disorder that they may also develop is that they may also develop glaucoma. Now, the drainage system of the eye that drains the fluid from the eye is in that same area near the iris. So when the iris is not developed normally, Many times these kids do not have a normal drainage system and too much fluid develops inside the eye. So very similar to a water balloon that's getting filled with too much water, the eye could accumulate too much water, it causes pressure, and that can cause total blindness. So as you could see, for these children who do have aniridia, it could also cause many other types of conditions, including the cataract and the glaucoma. Now, it also does affect the retina as well. The retina is often going to have what is called macular hypoplasia. So we remember that the macula is the center part of the retina that gives us our detailed vision and our color vision and our daylight vision, and it has hypoplasia. So hypo means low, plasia means growth. So the macula did not fully grow. You might ask them, so these kids will see exactly like the children with achromatopsia? And the answer to that is no, usually not. The reason for that is that with aniridia, the macula did not fully develop. But there is some development there. In achromatopsia, usually there is no macula whatsoever. So as a result, when a child has aniridia, the macula is not fully developed, and so they will have very similar symptoms to achromatopsia, but it will not be as bad. So number one, with aniridia, the first sign is that they're going to be very, very light sensitive because there is no iris to control or filter out how much light gets inside the eye. You could almost think of it as how your eyes felt when you were dilated, when you had your eyes examined. When the doctors put drops in your eyes, it dilates your pupil, and there's so much light coming into your eye that it's very painful. Number two, when you have aniridia, if you also have a cataract, your vision is very, very blurred. It could be to the extent that you could only see a flashlight and nothing else. So the cataract will have to be removed, and you have to then be fit with contact lenses as well as thick, powerful glasses. Number three, if a child has glaucoma with the aniridia, and this is something that has been there for quite a while, it's possible that these children will have tunnel vision. As you might recall, glaucoma damages the nerves that control our peripheral vision. So when a person has glaucoma, the way that they see, it often, often appears as though they're looking through a straw. And because there is no peripheral vision, if they have glaucoma, they often have difficulties with seeing at night. They cannot see well when they're walking, so they trip and stumble all the time. And these children often want to be using their hands so that they could feel where things are. Now, if a child has aniridia, but there is no cataract, 
and no glaucoma, you might then ask, what's their vision like? Well, their vision is still going to be reduced because of the fact that the macula did not develop fully. So without the macula, they don't have good detailed vision, and their vision might be any place between 2050 to 2200. So as a result, some of them might be legally blind, but many of them may not be legally blind. Number two, because it affects the macula, it can affect their color vision. Some of them can see primary colors, and some of them may have severe color vision problems. Number three, their ability to see under different lighting conditions is often very, very difficult, and that's because they do not have the iris to regulate how much light comes into their eyes. So to help these kids, we again often will fit them with a contact lens. By fitting them with a contact lens, we can create an artificial iris. We just had a young girl come in the other day, and this is a girl where she is now 21 years old, and she wanted to be able to just see better and to improve the appearance of her eyes. So we fit her with a specially painted contact lens, and in the very center of it, we had a light tint. So when she puts on these brown contact lenses, her eyes look like she has a regular dark brown eye, and she's got the tint in the center to reduce the brightness. When she is outside, she wears sunglasses over on top of that, and in her particular case, we use what is called a no-IR lens. And this is a specialized type of lens that really filters out the light and it improves her contrast vision. Now, in her case, she also had a cataract, and her cataract was something that was removed, so we simply put the power that she needed into the contact lens so she no longer has to wear the Coke bottle glasses. So she's really pleased how it really changed her appearance. You know, she doesn't look like the nerd with the Coke bottle glasses, and before she had to wear a second pair of sunglasses over on top of her glasses. And so now she could wear stylish sunglasses. She's got the contact lenses, and she was really very, very pleased. Now, to help her to have better acuity, we use the same types of optical visual aids. We used reading glasses to allow her to read. Her hobby is actually to shoot photography. So what she did is that she used a monocular telescope, and she would look at the scenes that she wanted to take pictures with. And once she found it, she would then put the camera up to her eye and look through the viewfinder. So what we did for her camera, we also changed her camera a bit, and we actually inserted a polarized filter inside of the eyepiece of the camera. And in this way, what she saw was darker, and she could get much more clarity out of it. So she's employed as a professional photographer, and she's trying to earn a living this way. And she also uses the telescope so that she could read traffic signs and, and crossing signals and such. Now, her other concern was, well, what can I do to be a bit more independent? I want to move away from home. And one of the things that I had recommended to her was to purchase the iPhone 4S. So in her case, by having the iPhone 4S, she would have a telephone, she would have access to the Internet, and with some different applications, she would have GPS to get to the different places, the offices or the homes of her clients. Now, there's an application that's called Sendero Lookaround, and it's a $4 application, and this is very good because you can find out where you are very, very easily. Let's say that you're riding in a cab and you want to know if you're stopped coming. You could simply tap your phone and it will tell you what intersection is coming next. And that's a real, real good device because if you are riding on a bus, you don't have to worry about missing your bus stop. That's really, really a drag when you miss your bus stop and you're on the bus like that. Another application that we thought would also be really helpful for her was to use a different type of a color meter. 
Because she's wearing these dark contact lenses and such, we thought that it would be helpful that she would have another backup. Now, with the iPhone 4S, we recommended a color application, and with this, she could then go ahead and place her phone over any colored material, and it will tell her in great depth what color that was. So this way, she wouldn't have to worry that her client was wearing purple when it was actually navy blue or something like that. So with these different applications, it was really, really great for her, and she was also able to use a dictation feature on the iPhone to make her calendar and her appointments. So rather than trying to find a pencil and paper when she gets a call, she simply could talk into her phone and schedule that appointment, and she could do all of that verbally. So this was something that helped her out really very, very much. Now, when we see children who do have aniridium, it's also important that you have them tested by their pediatrician for what is called a Wilms tumor. And that's W-I-L-M, Wilms tumor. And this is a tumor that affects the areas of the kidneys. And so it's very, very important that anytime you see a child who has aniridia, make certain they have been tested for this. Because we see a lot of times that we diagnose the children with aniridia, and these are kids who are four or five years of age, and they've never been tested for that. So we want to go ahead and make sure they're tested in that way as well. Uh, for younger kids with the aniridia, you can go ahead and recommend a video magnifier. Portable video magnifiers are helpful, and also the video magnifiers that focus far and near. Now, some kids, if they are not being followed by their eye doctor, they can become totally blind with aniridia. And this will be the situation if they do not see a doctor at least twice a year because it is possible that they can develop the glaucoma. So if they develop glaucoma and the pressure goes too high, it will damage their optic nerve and they could become totally blind. Now, another third condition that we often see is albinism. And albinism is something that's quite easy to detect on the children because of the fact that these are children who do not have any kind of pigmentation or they have very reduced pigmentation to their eyes, hair, and their skin. So we're going to talk about the most common type of albinism, and this is called oculocutaneous. That's O-C-U-L-O-C-U-T-A-N-E-O-U-S, oculocutaneous albinism. And this is albinism that affects the eyes and the skin. So as a result, it's very, very apparent to identify these children. Now, many times you'll find that these children with oculocutaneous albinism may be African-American children or they may be Hispanic children, and it's very interesting because they look so different. You see that they do have the African-American features, but as you look at their eyes and their hair and their skin, they don't have the normal coloration. So when you look at their hair, their hair is white, or sometimes there might be slight traces of a little bit of a tan color or a little bit of a blonde color. You look at their eyelashes and their eyebrows, and it's white. There is no color. When you look at their iris, the colored part of their eyes, it often will be where you see pink because you're actually seeing the blood vessels that are in the iris. And you look at their skin, and their skin is just extremely, extremely white. Now, when we think about oculocutaneous albinism, there's a couple of different subtypes. One of them is something that is called tyrosinase positive, and that's T-Y-R-O-S-I-N-A-S-C, tyrosinase positive. And children with tyrosinase positive means that they have the gene that does produce some color. So if you see a child who has albinism, but you look at their hair more carefully, and you notice, you know, it's not completely white. There's a little bit of brown to it. These kids often have tyrosinase positive. If the child is totally white and there's no coloration at all, that's called tyrosinase negative. 
Now, the child who has tyrosinase positive with a little bit of color in their skin or their hair, these kids often will have slightly better visual acuity. Their visual acuity might be as good as 2060, 2070, or 2080. The patients who have tyrosinase negative, where there is absolutely no coloration at all, they will often have worse vision, where it's 2200 to 2400. So what happens when a child has oculocutaneous albinism, the macula is not fully developed. They also have macular hypoplasia, very similar to the patients that have the aniridia. So because they have macular hypoplasia, they may not see details real well, they may not see very well in the bright light, and they may have color vision problems. But interestingly, most children with albinism generally have very good color vision. We're a little bit surprised that so many of them have such good color vision. So their visual acuity is often going to be blurred. They often have a high degree of farsightedness and a high degree of astigmatism, so it's often very important that they are fit with glasses. By fitting them with glasses, their vision might improve from 2200 to 2080. And that's a major difference. If a child's acuity is better than 2100, they usually could do many, many things visually quite well. But I remember for myself, when my vision worsened and it became worse than 2100, things became very, very difficult to do. So glasses can be very, very helpful for the child with oculocutaneous albinism. Number two, Within these glasses, we're going to tint them, and we will tint them to reduce their photophobia. Just like the kids with aniridia and achromatopsia, we want to tint the glasses to reduce the glare. And it's interesting because some kids with albinism do very well with red lenses. But there's others who do much better if we're using a dark gray lens. In either case, we use frames that are going to filter the light from the side. Number four, because they have reduced acuity, they respond very well with a conventional optical aid. It could be high-powered reading glasses, a bifocal so they can magnify what they see. Others want to use a hand magnifier. A CCTV works very, very well. And the near-to-far focusing CCTVs are excellent because, again, we could change the color of the white dry erase board so there's less of that glare. And number five, kids with oculocutaneous albinism, I try to fit them with telescopic glasses as early as possible. The reason for that is I have found that kids with albinism learn to use telescopic glasses very well, and a great number of my patients with albinism are able to use the telescopic glasses well enough that they could drive. If we were to say which of the patients we see who have a retinal condition and have been able to get a driver's license, I would say that patients with albinism are usually some of the best candidates for getting that driver's license. So we fit them with a pair of bioptic telescopes so that you can learn to use it to copy from the board. A lot of them will use it as they're playing different types of sports and watching sports. And by the time that they're 17, they're usually very proficient to use it for driving riding their bicycles, and other types of things. Now, the good thing about the albinism is that it is not a progressive condition, and in many cases, their visual acuity improves with time. I find that their acuity improves because the nystagmus that they usually have, that also improves. Now, you might have some kids where the nystagmus is very, very severe, and as an attempt to reduce the nystagmus, the shaking of their eyes, these kids will turn their head towards one shoulder or the other and they will look in the opposite direction. So, for example, they might turn their head towards their right shoulder and let their eyes move to the left. And in that position, they could control the nystagmus. Now, when we do see this with kids, sometimes it looks strange that they're turning their head. So we may use something called a yoked prism glasses. That's Y-O-K-E-D prism glasses 
so that we can position what they see at a point so that they will not have as much nystagmus. There's also eye muscle surgery that could readjust the position of where they don't have as much nystagmus. So overall, the kids with albinism are probably some of the best prognosis of any low vision condition that we could see. Now, there's also another type of albinism that is called ocular albinism. Ocular albinism. And this is where children will have albinism, and it's only to the eyes. When you look at them, they could have black hair, black eyebrows, you know, very dark skin. And when we look inside their eyes, we notice that there's no color inside the retina region. So these kids will be very, very similar to the kids with oculocutaneous albinism, but their body, their skin, and their face looks more typical. But the way that we treat them is going to be mostly the same as the children with oculocutaneous albinism. They respond very well to the visual aids. It's more common that it will affect boys than girls, this type of ocular albinism. But both cases, they have very, very good prognosis. Now, the last particular type of condition that I wanted to talk briefly about is going to be retinitis pigmentosa. Now, retinitis pigmentosa, it's a condition that could affect children of all ages. We'll see newborns born with it, or we'll see others where it may affect their vision when they're as late as 20. Before 20 years of age, they're doing quite well. Now, RP, retinitis pigmentosa, there are many, many different types. Some of them are definitely inherited, but the majority of them do not seem to be inherited. Simplex, S-I-M-P-L-E-X, RP, is one of the more common types of RP, and this is when it affects one person within a family and nobody else. When we trace the history of the family, there's no generation that does have the RP. Multiplex, M-U-L-T-I-P-L-E-X, is when multiple people within a family will have RP, and we then see that it then affects people in subsequent generations. So it almost seems as though there was a genetic mutation that affected that generation within the family. Now with RP, it generally is going to affect the rod cells of the retina. It's going to affect the peripheral area of our pizza. So for these patients, they usually have night blindness. They cannot see things off on the left or the right or above or below them, so their vision is often like tunnel vision. They have difficulty seeing motion, so if you were to toss them a baseball or some other toy, they have difficulty seeing things that are moving. And for many of them, the central retina, the macula, remains perfectly fine. So if the retina in the center remains perfectly fine, they may have 20-20 eyesight, perfect color vision. They might make great eye contact with you, but then as soon as they try to walk or you put them into a darkened room or you take them to a darkened restaurant, they have a lot of problems. Now, as far as the condition, it is usually something that is progressive, but there are more and more studies that are using different types of treatments to slow the progression down, and many of these clinical research studies are very, very promising. One of them is called the ciliary neurotrophic factor, and this is a particular type of chemical that seems to be able to slow down retinitis pigmentosa. We're also seeing that the forms of RP that are genetically related where we can identify which gene is bad, there's a lot of promise that there could be a gene transplant to help these people with RP. Some of you may have heard of Lieber's congenital amaurosis, and this is a form of retinitis pigmentosa, and this is due to an abnormal gene, and they have been able to help children who have severe vision loss with gene therapy. By implanting the proper gene, the proper, proper proteins are produced and the retina functions better. So the types of visual aids to help these children 
we often will have to depend that on what is their visual acuity. To help them with their sensitivity to glare, usually orange sunglasses work better for them because the black is too dark. In the classroom, we often will use yellow lenses to reduce the pain or the discomfort they have with the fluorescent lights. Video magnifiers and CCTVs are often very, very, very helpful because most people with RP could see much better if it's a black or a blue background with yellow letters. And most importantly, I think for children with RP, it's important that they get counseling and they meet others so they could learn how to walk with orientation mobility training and they learn that they could do things even if they do have reduced vision. Of the patients and children I see, those children with RP often seem to have some of the lowest self-confidence. And I believe some of it is because their parents read or they hear from others and they know that it is a condition that can be uh, progressive. So we need to talk to these kids and let them know that even people who are totally blind could be very successful and do a lot of things. Okay, thank you. We'll go ahead and open up to questions. Are there any questions this evening? I have a question about tunnel vision. Yes. Um, I'm trying to understand. I always thought that tunnel vision would still allow a person um, that it would be at the sides, the bottom, the top, that the person would still be able to uh, have binocular vision. And then someone recently said she thinks it's like looking through two straws. Yeah, and the question is, what is it like when one has tunnel vision? Uh Now, when we talk about retinal conditions, if a person has a retinal condition such as retinitis pigmentosa, it might be that they have lost 1% of their peripheral vision. They might have lost 10%. Mm -hmm. It could be 50%, or it could be 100% of their peripheral vision. So the amount that that person sees, how wide of an area that that person sees, is going to be dependent on each individual case. Uh-huh. If a person, let's just say hypothetically that a child has retinitis pigmentosa and lost 100% of the peripheral vision, well, this child would then have to use the central vision in order to see. Uh-huh. And when that child is using the central vision, that child will still will have enough visual field so that they could read a letter or they could identify a a face. They might move their eyes to scan. Uh, Others will scan and move their eyes and their head so they can walk and see where things are. So many children with reduced peripheral vision, they adapt very well. And in all reality, many, many children who have reduced peripheral vision, they do not even know it. And that's because they have learned to compensate all these years that they've been growing up. Now, some people ask the question, if you have reduced peripheral vision, does that mean that you cannot use both eyes together? And that is false. Mm -hmm. I have many, many people who have tunnel vision, and they have no peripheral vision, but they do use both eyes together as a team. Mm -hmm. So if they put on 3D glasses and go to see Star Wars at the movie theater, they will see the 3D jumping out at them. Mm-hmm. You can tell generally if a person has binocular vision if their eyes appear to be straight. Mm. But if a person that you're looking at has one eye that is pointing towards their ear and the other eye is pointing straight, you then know that that person is probably just using one eye at a time. Mm-hmm. So people with reduced peripheral vision, the main disability that they would have is that it often is going to affect their night vision, like Uh if they're going trick-or-treating, and it may affect their sports performance, and it is something that can also affect their ability to see obstacles when they're walking if they have not learned to scan. Okay, thank you. One more question by anybody? Yeah, Dr. Bill, it's Leslie Bayless from Northern California. Hi. Thanks so much for doing this. Yes. 
I have a student that I'm working with who's very, very high academic. He's in an IB program, and um, he has albinism. And he was also diagnosed with um, type 1 diabetes, which I was not sure if you knew any uh, any correlation or heard of any other kids with albinism also having type 1 diabetes. Yeah, the question is, is there a high incidence of children who have albinism to also have diabetes? And I have read many case studies where people have written case studies where their children did have albinism along with diabetes. But um, personally, in my 25 years of, of seeing children and adults, I have never had a single patient who does have it. So I think that we could state that for any child or any adult with any kind of eye condition, it is possible that they could have high blood pressure or arthritis or diabetes and things as well. But to uh, my understanding and my experience, I do not observe that that's happening. But it is something that has definitely been reported in the journals. Okay, yeah. Um, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let the family know about that. Also, it's just, for him, it's very perplexing because he, he just tends to have, um, you know, he, he's not quite 20 over 200 in both eyes, but he's up in that higher range. But yet he seems to have, um, you know, considerable mobility issues as far as just being able to detect the ground and safety at intersections. And he he functions very well with a cane, which is, you know, great for me as a mobility teacher. But the perplexing thing is is that, like you said, he, he's a candidate to be driving. And it's like, how do you, as a vision professional, say, you know, in some situations when you walk you need a cane, but in other situations you can drive a car. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's no, very perplexing is, um, as to how to, I don't want to say explain, but how, how he deals with, in one moment I'm using a cane because I don't, you know, I don't walk very well or see cars at intersections, but yet I'm still capable and obviously DMV has to decide if he can drive. But, you know, um, but yet here in some situations he's capable of driving. Yes, this is a really great case that you brought up, and I'm really glad that you did. And the important thing here to remember is that we cannot identify a child's functional performance based on either the diagnosis or the visual acuity alone. For example, with this young man, he's very bright, and his visual acuity is better than 2200. And even though his visual acuity is better than 200, I could already tell what's happening with him. Number one, he probably does not have binocular vision. What that means is he probably is not able to use two eyes together at mm -hmm. the same time, and as a result, his stereoscopic depth perception is reduced. Right. So when he is walking, he doesn't really judge how far is that step or that curb. Yes, definitely. But doesn't me, that, me, with me, that me, one, the question becomes, it, it, wouldn't that affect his ability to drive dramatically? Yeah, let me go ahead and just explain this for okay. the recording. Okay, I'm sorry about that. So the first step is, remember, you cannot estimate a child's visual function based on the visual acuity alone. The visual acuity measurement, we have a 99% contrast with a black letter on a white background, and there's very few things in his world that he sees that has that contrast. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me that, number one, we need to look at his binocular vision and his depth perception. That's going to affect how he walks, and I believe that his is probably reduced. That's why he uses the cane. Number two, in addition to visual acuity and binocular vision, we have to look at his contrast vision. He probably has reduced contrast sensitivity, so things that are gray on gray are difficult for him to see. He may mistaken a ramp with a set of stairs and vice mm -hmm. versa. Number three, we also have to then get a better understanding as to how does his brain coordinate what he sees with his body at the same time, his eye-hand coordination skills. So when we look at all of these things, plus his color vision, as well as his ability to scan and to move his eyes, where is his nystagmus? When we look at everything, we can paint a picture of his functional vision. Now, in his case, 
he does not sound like a person who would be a good candidate to drive because he can't even walk well. Right. And so we take that into consideration. But I think he would really benefit from having a good functional low vision examination so that we could begin to try to develop some of these skills on him. It may be that he's going to wear colored glasses or colored contact lenses. He might need to wear prism glasses to help him to use the two eyes together. He may need to perform exercises to develop his depth perception and so on and so forth. So that's a perfect example that you brought up there. And I can tell, you know, you're you're very observant and you could see that his function doesn't look as good as others who have 2200 vision. Excellent. Well, that helps a lot. You know, the eye-hand coordination, too, I didn't even, I mean, I kind of thought about that, but that's really an important thing to think about. Yes. Well, I want to thank all of you for joining in this evening, and I also want to thank Mr. Dick Burden. Uh, Thank you, Dick from Airs LA, who is recording this. This uh, recording will be available at the Braille Institute website, and that's at www.braille.com. Institute.org, and it will also be up at AirsLA at www.airsla.org. And if any of you are going to be at the CTE BBI conference this coming weekend at the Los Angeles International Airport Marriott, um, I will be speaking there Friday afternoon at 1 o'clock and 3 o'clock. And at 1 o'clock, we have a session that's called Ask Dr. Bill, so you could bring any of the cases and students that you have and ask any questions. And at 3 o'clock, we're going to be talking about solutions to help children with retinopathy of prematurity and optic nerve hypoplasia. So, again, want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope that you tune in next month. Thank you.